Hey, New Song students, welcome to my office. Today I'm going to be preaching the message uh, from here by myself uh, because we had some technical difficulties with the audio recording from service last week. But I just felt like this message was so important to this new series that we're kicking off that I wanted to record it anyways. So the teaching text for this message is Micah 6, starting in verse 6. Here's what it says. It says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? With the Lord, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with tens of thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you to do justly, to love kindness and to walk humbly with our God. So today we are kicking off a brand new series called Together and it is a series on biblical relationships. So I'm going to pray and then we will dive into this message. So Father, thank you so much for your word. God, your word is living and active and It always produces power in the life of those who hear it. It always builds our faith. And I pray that even in this uh, new um, way of hearing the word, God, I pray that it would speak um, power to us about relationships and how we can walk through them like you did, Jesus. So breathe on this message, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. So I want to kick off this message asking a question. How do you measure discipleship? How do you and can we measure the progress of a person who is following Jesus? Is that something that we can measure? Well, if you've been at New Song for any amount of time, then you've probably heard us talk about when you become a Christian, when you totally surrender your life to Jesus, you are invited to a race. Being a Christian is not about waiting around, enjoying the the pleasures of this world, trying to avoid sin, and just waiting until we finally get to be in heaven one day. If that were the case, then God would not leave us here when we were saved, but he does. When we raise our hands and we say the prayer and we surrender our lives to him, we are left on this earth. Why does that happen? Well, because there's a race we've been invited to run. Hebrews 12.1 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for who the joy who was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So, to recap, The race we are called to run can be summed up in this one word, discipleship. Apprenticeship. Practicing the way of Jesus is the race. Now, in this race, it's it's interesting to note what Hebrews tells us. The finish line is Jesus. He's the one who we're running towards. And at the very same time, he's actually the one empowering us to even be able to run this race in the first place. I love how... This verse describes the race. It's in the direction of Jesus. It says, looking to him. 
And then it says that he's the one perfecting our faith. He's making us stronger as we run. But in this race of discipleship, how do we measure if we're running successfully? What's the metric? How do we determine if we're running well or if we're running poorly on this race? Well, it's important for us to know that this race is different than the typical races we are used to being a part of. There's a race I used to be a part of growing up that I'm familiar with, and it's the race of Mario Kart. I don't know if you guys ever played Mario Kart before or if that's um, like a prehistoric millennial thing these days. But my brother and I grew up playing hours and hours and hours of the best Mario Kart game that ever came out, which is Mario Kart Double Dash. It was on the Nintendo GameCube, which is vintage now, I'm pretty sure. Um, But this was the superior Nintendo Mario Kart game. Now in Double Dash, um, there was a few ways that you can measure the success of your race. Uh, The first way you can measure your success is by checking the position on the field. So when you have your screen, there's a little number on the right-hand corner of your screen, and it lets you know what position you are in the field. It's constantly changing depending on who you've passed or not. Now, we know that if the number on that screen reads 10, 11, or 12, you are doing pretty bad in the race. You're not having a fun time. You're probably pretty upset. If your number reads 1, 2, or 3, I know I was always feeling pretty good because as long as I hit a podium, I would feel good about that race. And then you've got everybody else in the middle of the field, and they are just hanging on for dear life, trying not to be in last place. So this is the one of the ways we can determine the success of our race, is the position we are in compared to other people. But another way you can determine success in Mario Kart is by hitting these things called mystery boxes and, and getting items. So if you're familiar with the game, um, you know that being, a, being at the bottom of the race is really, really bad unless you're able to score some really good power-ups, like the Superstar or even Bullet Bill. Once you get those items, you know, man, I might be in last, but I still have a shot in this race. So another way we can determine success is by the items that we are carrying in the race. And another way that you can determine success in Mario Kart is by playing on tracks and environments that you're comfortable with. Now, we all know, if you've played Mario Kart before, that Rainbow Road is by far the biggest headache of a racetrack. And if you win on Mario Kart, um, on Rainbow Road, then that was just complete luck. Um, You're not actually that good. But you get me on a different track like Donkey Kong Mountain or uh, Peach Beach, I know those play, those maps like the back of my hand. I can drift every corner that I need to. I know the shortcuts. I'm comfortable with the track, so I know if I'm on that track that I will have success in the race. Now, these are some funny ways that we can determine the success of a Mario Kart race in Double Dash. But what about the race of discipleship? I think if we're not careful, we can all very easily adopt the wrong forms of measurement when it comes to our race of discipleship. We can find ourselves in this race, and if we're not careful, we can actually think that we're running this race well based off our standards of measurement, but in the reality is, we're not running well. It'd be like if we were you know, in Mario Kart, and we're drifting every corner perfectly, but we're going in the opposite direction. That would not be a good thing. 
sometimes I wonder if our standards in the church world today are just a little bit off. This is a trap that we've seen in modern day churches. And I think we've fallen into it because of this rise of mega churches and, you know, these business modeled ministries and celebrity pastors. Now, I want to I want to be clear when I say this. Every time I talk about mega churches, I want you to know that I'm not saying that nothing good comes from those because I came from a mega church that discipled me very well. In fact, at New Song, sometimes I hear people complain about other churches they've been in in the past and they say, oh, we just love New Song because it's so small and intimate. But the size of a church doesn't determine the success of a church. The presence of God does. Small churches can have the presence of God and big churches can have the presence of God. In the same way, a small church cannot and a big church cannot. And that's what determines the success. So if we're not careful in this race, we can we can develop the wrong standards of measurement to determine how we think we're running this race of discipleship. And sometimes the church has fallen into this trap by thinking that bigger services and more campuses and more baptisms is what determines success. If we're not careful, we can do this individually as Christians, and we can fall into the trap of comparison instead of looking to Jesus as our goal and our standard of measurement We can look at other disciples in the position we're in compared to them. We can think, how are they running their race? Where am I in relation to them? Oh, I think I'm running better than them, so I must be doing good. But this is not how we should measure our race. Sometimes we see this. We see disciples, people who are following Jesus that we look up to, and we just copy and paste what they're doing to our life because we think that that's the standard of measurement. So maybe we see that they have an Instagram bio with scripture in it. So that's what we do. Or maybe we see that they are pursuing ministry and we think, well, if I want to be a true disciple, then I have to pursue ministry. Or maybe they're a person who loves Jesus genuinely, but they have um, a really bad mouth and they cuss a lot. And so you let that determine the way you use your mouth versus the word of God. But this is not the standard of discipleship. If we're not careful, we can adopt the wrong standard of measurement to determine our race by looking at other people, but this is not how we should do it. Going back to Mario Kart, another way we can can do this is by looking at the advantages we possess as believers. In Mario Kart, if you're last, you know you're probably feeling bad about yourself, but if, if you get that correct um, that gifting, that that item that you needed, you can use that to say, man, I think I'm going to be okay in this race. And if we're not careful, we as disciples, we can look at the giftings we've been given to justify our discipleship. But we got to recognize that a gifting God gives us is not based on the race we're running, how we're running it. It's based on him and his grace. We see this in the real world played out all the time. It's unfortunate, but Um, And it breaks God's heart. But sometimes we see gifted pastors and ministers fall morally. They have a sin that they've been hiding, but it's exposed for all to see. Now, on the outside, everything looked great. Uh, Everything looked like they were um, a successful pastor, and they were talented, and they're doing things for the kingdom of God. But deep down inside, there's a sin wrecking their family and themselves. Now, when that is exposed, we can think, man, how could they? They're so talented. 
their church is so big. I thought they were a good disciple of Christ. But we have to remember that the gifts and the talents that we have don't determine the success of our discipleship race. We can look at all of these things to determine our success. We can look at our spiritual disciplines and think, I've read my Bible, I've prayed, I've served in church. All of those things are good, but they're not necessarily the standard. And we see Jesus addressing this. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus has an encounter with a group of dudes famously known as the Pharisees. Now, when we typically hear the title Pharisee today, we think of these guys as the bad guys. But you've got to understand that during the time of Jesus, these were the good guys. They were literally the epitome of what it meant to be Jewish. They were the religious elite. The Pharisees were not looked down upon by anybody during Jesus's time. In fact, they were honored. They were revered. They were the ultimate example to everybody of what it meant to truly love God, or so they thought. And in many instances, including Luke 11, um, Jesus addresses the Pharisees in a way that would have totally thrown off everybody's perspective of them. So check this out. Luke Luke 11, verse 37 says, While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not wash before dinner. Okay, so what's happening? Jesus sits down to eat dinner with these homies, these Pharisees, and he does not perform a rigid hand-washing ceremony, and the Pharisees lose their minds. Now, what's even crazier is that this uh, rigid hand-washing ceremony was not even in the law of Moses, and Jesus knew that. This is something that had become a requirement in their culture over time. It was not rooted in God's word. It was just rooted in religion. David Guzik says this, A really strict Jew would do this not only before the meal, but also between each course through the meal. The rabbis were deadly serious about this, saying that bread eaten by unwashed hands was no better than excrement. That's poop, by the way. So this, this is the, the Pharisees seeing Jesus do this, and they are thinking this is the most disgusting thing they could possibly see happen from a guy who claims to be God, and they lose their minds. But this would be like somebody coming to New Song students for the first time ever, and you see that they're not raising their hands during worship, and you question their salvation. It's like, it's a ridiculous claim. It's like, we have this culture in New Song students of worshiping God and expressing our love to him. But then you seeing somebody not do that and you're questioning whether they worship Satan or not. Like, it makes no sense to jump to that conclusion. But this was their standard of measurement. They thought that being a disciple was based off of ceremonial hand washing. But then Jesus drops the hammer on them. He drops some truth on them. Let's, let's continue. There, verse 39 And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? Let's skip to verse 42. It says, But woe to you Pharisees, 
For you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. Let's remember that. Then he says, these things you ought to have done without neglecting the others. The Pharisees, you got to remember, they were everybody's example of godliness. According to Jewish culture, according to their understanding of purity, according to their measurements, the Pharisees were killing it. They ceremonially washed. They sat in the best seats in the synagogue. They tithed on the very number of leaves in their herb gardens. But Jesus saw past all of their religious games and into their heart. And what's interesting is that Jesus never said that any of the spiritual disciplines they were doing were wrong. He actually says, these things you ought to have done. In other words, Jesus is saying, you should do all of those things. You should be tithing. You should be reading the scriptures. You should be trying to walk in purity. But those things don't determine or measure your discipleship. Those things are important, but they're not the main point. So what is the point? I know I've been talking a long time about what's not the point. Hopefully you know by now how not to determine discipleship. Discipleship is not measured by the size of our churches. It's not measured by our talents. It's not measured by your Bible reading streak, what's in your Instagram bio, the spiritual giftings you have. None of these things determine or reveal the progress we have in discipleship. So what is it? How do I know if I'm growing in my race? Let's go back to what Jesus says. He says, but woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect. Here's what they neglected. Justice and the love of God. David Guzik says this. Legalism of this sort assumes that people will only know we follow God if we do all these things associated with rules and regulations. Instead, Jesus said that the real mark of a believer is the love they have for others in God's family. It was as if a soldier did great in marching drills and put all their emphasis there, but wasn't any good in battle. This would not be a good soldier. Being good at all the outward things of Christianity doesn't mean you're necessarily a good Christian. Matthew 22, let's read some scripture about this. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus is saying that the entire Bible, before the New Testament has been created, can be summed up in two things. Love God with everything in you and love people with everything in you. John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So, discipleship. How is it measured? It is measured by how I love my neighbor. To be a Christian 
purely based on a right belief system, according to David Guzik, is like being a soldier who is great at marching drills but isn't any good in battle. Now, we just came out of our vision series um, two weeks ago, as it is in heaven. And we talked about how we're focusing this year on seeing our earth look like heaven. We talked about dying to self. We talked about representing God's kingdom. We talked about the power of prayer. But ultimately, it led up to the point of everything is to know God and to be with him. And that, that that's the race we're running. It's to know God and to be with him, to run in his direction and to run with him. Now, you need to remember, whether you love people well or not, it doesn't determine if you're in the race. Like, if you've made Jesus the Lord of your life, then you're in the race, period. If you haven't made him the Lord of your life, you need to know he's inviting you into this beautiful race to run. So I'm not saying that if you don't love your neighbor, then you're not a real runner, I'm not up here saying that if we don't love people well, then they're not real Christians, because if that were the case, then there would be no real Christians. It's it's not about that. We all struggle with loving people like Christ. Being a Christian is not about what we do. Ultimately, it's about what Christ did. So if you're a believer in Jesus and you love him and you're surrendered to him, guess what? You are in the race, not because of anything you did but because of Jesus. He ran his race perfectly. The race is to know him, but in order to know how well, listen to me, in order to know how well we are running in the race, we can look at how we love others. I love this by Chuck DeGroat. He says, the relational posture of a Christian is anchored in our union with Christ. What he's saying is the way that we talk and relate to other people is anchored in how we abide with Jesus. So look at this. God dwells in us by the Spirit, nearer to us than our very breath. Anyone who lives from this depth of intimate relationship will long to be like-minded, unified, unselfish, humble, self-sacrificing, anything but narcissistic. Let me translate that for us. In other words, the fruit of my actions towards another person has more to do with how I'm walking with Jesus and less to do with them. None of us have the ability to control others. And at the end of the day, we don't have really much ability to control anything in our world. But what we can control is our heart connection to the Lord. And what Chuck what Chuck DeGro is basically getting at is that if we are truly abiding in the Lord, then the fruit of that relationship with God is going to be love that like love that looks like Christ and vice versa. That means the inverse is true. If I'm not loving others well, the first thing I need to take a look at is not the people I'm struggling with and their actions. I don't need to look at what they did or what they didn't do. I need to look at me. I need to first look at my connection with Jesus or my lack of connection with him. John 13, 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I don't know about you, but Jesus makes the standard pretty clear right there. This is how all people, the whole world, the lost, the super lost, the little lost, they're going to know you're a disciple because of how you loved people. 
in the book of Acts, we see this truth being played out. The early church was a small group of people in, in the span of the Roman Empire, but they made a big splash. And I promise you, it's not because of the belief system that they held in their minds, but it's because of the lifestyle that that, that, that belief system translated to. The Romans, uh, the Roman Empire wasn't changed because they ran around saying what they believed in. It changed because the early church lived differently. Timothy Keller says this, The early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with their money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically everybody their body. And the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body and gave practically everybody their money. The Roman world didn't notice the early church because they of their beliefs alone. They noticed the early church because they lived differently. We know in Acts 4, it says that they shared everything. They spent time together. They were completely unified. They gave all of their money to those, to those in need. We could spend an entire message just reading through scriptures about how central this is to our faith, loving others well. But I'll, I'll close with this. 1 John 4, 19 says, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must love his brother. So before we move on, let's just get uber practical for a second. Let's bring this down to earth and ask some real world examples and questions. Let's say you're somebody who's been attending New Song students for years now. You've been to camp with us. Uh, last summer, you were a part of apprenticeship, so you spent extra time at the church. You serve most weekends. You feel like you're a pretty solid disciple of Christ. But let's say that you struggle relationally. Biblically speaking, let's ask the question, what's the measure of your discipleship? So maybe you went through apprenticeship last summer, but at home, you struggle. You never honor and obey your father and your mother, where's the proof of your walk with Christ? If somebody asks you, how do I know you love Christ? Would you say, oh, it's because I went to apprenticeship last summer? Or would it be, oh, it's because I obey my parents? Maybe you, maybe you come um, in on a Wednesday and you worship. Like you worship harder than anybody else in the room. But then you leave the room and during our lobby hangouts, you you say sarcastic remarks that tear people down. And then you say, man, I was just kidding. It was just a joke. But, but they didn't take it that way. we got to ask the question, where's the proof of your discipleship? Is the proof in the fact that you raised your hands during worship? Or is it in the way you treated a brother or a sister in Christ? Maybe you feel led to like give a word of knowledge. You feel like the Lord gave you a word for one of your friends. And you're like, hey, this is what God told me about you. But then you neglect the person standing all by their, themselves in the lobby before service. What's the proof of discipleship? Is it in the prophetic word you gave? Or the fact that you neglected somebody? 1 Corinthians 13.1 1 
If I speak in tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have a prophetic power and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Now, if I'm stepping on your toes, just know this message challenged me too. Now, this may sound harsh, and if you're hearing any of these examples and you're starting to feel bad, please don't allow the enemy to bring shame into your mind or your heart. This is not about making anybody feel bad. This is just about us waking up because being a Christian, loving Jesus is a high call. It is not about talking the talk. It is about power. And in order to genuinely know how we are doing in our relationship with Christ, in our journey of discipleship, we have to take an honest look at how we've been loving the people around us. So New Song students, how have you been with this lately? I'm not saying you need to be perfect at this, but do you see the Lord changing your heart in such a way that you are loving people like he does? How have you been with your parents lately? How have you been treating your siblings lately? How have you been treating your friends? Are you walking in unforgiveness? Have you treated your enemies well recently? These are the questions we need to be asking. Augustine of Hippo says this, Nothing so clearly discovers a spiritual man as his treatment of an erring brother. What that means is the way you treat the person who drives you the most crazy is a description of what your discipleship looks like. The way you treat your brother who drives you crazy, your parents who you feel like are on your back, the way you treat them is the proof of your discipleship. Now, it sounds silly, but as we get ready to close tonight, we need to clarify two things. What is biblical love? And who does the Bible say our neighbor is? (laughs) Now, that sounds obvious. But if we don't define these, then we can fall into another trap that the Pharisees fell into, and that's the trap of trying to justify ourselves. We see this take place a chapter earlier in Luke 10 with the parable of the Good Samaritan. I'm not going to read the whole parable. I'm just going to read the conversation that takes place before the parable with Jesus. Look at this. And Jesus answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Hopefully that sounds familiar. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do all this, and you shall live. Look at this. This is what the Pharisee thinks. He's trying to justify himself right now. He says, But desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? The Pharisee is asking Jesus to clarify the rules, listen to me, not because he wants to love his neighbor, but but, but because he doesn't want to love his neighbor. This Pharisee is literally thinking, if I can define who I think my neighbor is, then I can control who receives my love. We've been going back to this a lot recently, But this is the same trap we see during the fall in the Garden of Eden. God gives the standard, don't eat from the fruit. Don't eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the standard. It's pretty black and white. But then the enemy comes in and says, is that really the standard? 
Eve, did God really say that? I'll never forget um, a conversation I had with um, a friend of mine, two friends of mine who were engaged to be married, and they were living together. And sweet friends of mine uh, that I got to meet with and talk with them about because um, they didn't feel like it was an issue. They were not married yet, but they were doing married things. And um, so I met with them, and just in love and in grace and truth, I started walking them through the scriptures and telling them, hey, according to the Bible, all sexual activity outside of the marriage covenant between a man and a woman is sinful, and it's not God's will for your life. It's not his best for you. And throughout this conversation, they're understanding, they're following me. But then my friend, uh, she responded by saying, I mean, I, I get it. I know that it's wrong. Um, but I feel like we honor God in our relationship in other ways. Like we do lots of godly things. And plus, uh, this just doesn't really convict me that much. So I responded in love. I said, hey, I understand that this may not be your conviction, our conviction doesn't determine what the Bible says the standard is. And then I, I kind of went through an analogy. I, I flipped the script and I said, hey, I see what you're saying, but let's flip it and let's pretend that I'm in your shoes. I'm your pastor. And let's say that I get caught in a sexual sin that I've been hiding. And let's say that I tell you that, man, I know it was wrong, but I'm also doing all of these other godly things. I'm writing messages. I pray for students. So I know that this thing I did is wrong, but I'm also doing a lot of good. If I said this, I asked her, what would you call me? I was like, you would call me a hypocrite, right? I'm using my works, my good works to justify something that is actually sin in my life. So in the most loving way I knew how to, I just said, hey guys, this is what you're doing. But if you choose right now to repent and to align your life with God's standard. He'll bless your relationship. And thankfully they did. And I'm so happy for what God's doing in their life. Now, I share that story simply as an example, because sometimes we do this when it comes to our relationships. Maybe we know that we are not loving people in our life well. So we try to adapt the standard to make us look a little better. We think, well, I would love them more, but fill in the blank. I, I tried to love them, but fill in the blank. Man, if they would just stop doing this thing, if they would change, then fill in the blank. So let's close with defining what is love and who is our neighbor. What is love? Well, there is a lot of ways you can explain biblical love. In fact, one of the clearest ways is reading 1 Corinthians 13, and that's your homework. I want you to read it this week, memorize it. It's as clear as day what love is and what love isn't, but the ultimate picture of love for us is this. It's the cross. What does biblical love look like? It's not a feeling. It's not infatuation. It's not soft and squishy. Love looks like the cross. John 15, 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. How did Jesus love us? Look at this. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. 
New Song students, biblical love is willingly choosing the death of a part of me for your benefit. This is what Jesus did for us. He willingly chose to lay down his life, to choose death on the cross for our benefit. This is the foundation of what biblical love looks like. If I say that I love you, but then I have to manipulate you to get what I want, then it doesn't matter the words that I say because I don't actually love you. If I say I love you, but then I have to tear you down with the words that I say to make me feel better, then it doesn't matter what I say. I don't actually love you. Are you following me? If we say that we love them, but then we take from them what's not really ours, then we don't actually love. So students, is this what your love towards the people in your life looks like? Towards your boyfriend or your girlfriend who you say you love, but maybe you guys have fallen into some temptations and you've fallen into some patterns of sexual sin. Man, you may say that you love them, but according to scripture, you're stealing. You're taking something from them that doesn't belong to you. So according to the Bible, you don't love them. If you did, you would honor them by waiting. If you say you love your parents, but you never obey and honor them, man, that's the proof in the pudding. You don't love them. So I know this is all very real and down to earth and kind of harsh, but this is the standard of discipleship, and we need to be asking these questions. And then finally, who is my neighbor? Well, it sounds kind of obvious. This is going to blow your mind, but your neighbor, by definition, is the person who is living near to you. <laughs> now we're all like, duh, I knew that, Pastor Jackson. But I was thinking about this, and I think a good way to think about it is this. You don't have the power to choose who your neighbor is. When you're moving, when you're buying a house, you don't get to decide who lives next to you. All you get to decide is where you're going to live. You just decide where you want to go and you adapt accordingly. In the same way, biblical love doesn't decide who we're going to give our love to. Biblical love is a decision that you are going to live in God's love. And guess what? Whoever is near to you is going to receive that love. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter what they've done to you. That's your neighbor. You don't get to decide who it is. And so as we get ready to um, close, I just want to challenge us New Song students to take inventory of our hearts and to ask the hard questions. Maybe you feel like you've been growing in your discipleship, and I'm sure you have. The Lord uses all of these outward things to form us, like apprenticeship and going to students every week and doing our spiritual disciplines. I will preach all day long that these are good things to do. But we can't just do the good things without asking the harder questions of, am I loving my neighbor? Is this stuff actually getting deep into my heart and changing me? And if we begin to do this, New Song students, we'll be able to tap into a love that Christ has put in each of us that are running a race, and it'll spill out into the people in our lives. We'll love actually like he did. So I'm going to close in prayer, and then we'll see you this Wednesday to continue this series. Father, I thank you so much for this message and this wake-up call for us to love well. 
God, I pray that you would reveal to us the deep places of our heart. If any of us have been struggling to love our neighbor well, or we've been like the Pharisees and we've been trying to justify who our neighbor is, who gets to receive our love, God, I pray that you would wake us up to that. And I pray that you would wake us up to the love that you've placed inside of us, that Jesus, you loved us with a love that looks like unlike any other person. You, you gave up your entire life. You gave up heaven to put on flesh, to live like us so that we could be with you. Lord, help us to practice your way with the people in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, New Song students, I love you guys. I hope you enjoyed this message, and we cannot wait to see you on the best day of the week.